Good evening. A split verdict favors Johnny Depp over Amber Heard in dueling defamation lawsuits. Inflation, is it getting better or worse? Missiles for Ukraine, is Russia the target? And the mayor and the classroom. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, June 1st, 2022. A Virginia jury today ruled that actor Amber Heard defamed ex-husband Johnny Depp in a widely watched six-week trial featuring graphic testimony detailing the former Hollywood couple's soured relationship. In civil case number CL 2019-2911, Mr. Depp's claim against Ms. Heard. One, as to the statement appearing in the online op-ed entitled Amber Heard, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That has to change. In the Washington Post online edition, quote, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That has to change, end quote. Do you find that Mr. Depp has proven all the elements of defamation? Answer, yes. Depp 58 sued Heard for $50 million and argued that she defamed him when she called herself a public figure representing domestic abuse in a newspaper opinion piece. Heard, 36, countersued for $100 million, saying Depp smeared her when his lawyer called her accusations a hoax. The seven-person jury also ruled in favor of Heard on one count in her countersuit against Depp. As to this statement, quote, quite simply, this was an ambush, a hoax. They set Mr. Depp up by calling the cops, but the first attempt did not do the trick. The officers came to the penthouses, thoroughly searched and interviewed, and left after seeing no damage to face or property. So Amber and her friends spilled a little wine and roughed the place up, got their story straight under the direction of a lawyer and publicist, and then placed a second call to 911, end quote. Do you find that Ms. Heard has proven all the elements of defamation? Answer, yes. Jurors awarded Depp $15 million in damages from Heard. The panel ordered Depp to pay Heard $2 million in damages. Depp has denied hitting Heard or any woman and said she was the one who turned violence in their relationship. The jury gave me my life back. I am truly humbled, Depp, who watched the verdict from Britain, said in a statement issued by a spokesperson. His lawyers, Camille Vasquez and Benjamin Chow, spoke to the media as Depp supporters cheered. Today's verdict confirms what we have said from the beginning, that the claims against Johnny Depp are defamatory and unsupported by any evidence. We are grateful, so grateful to the jury. Our judicial system is predicated on each person's right to have his or her case heard. And we were honored, truly honored, to assist Mr. Depp in ensuring that his case was fairly considered throughout the trial. We are also most pleased that the trial has resonated for so many people in the public who value truth and justice. Now that the, it's time to turn the page and look to the future. Thank you all so much thank and you. thanks to the jury. Thank you so much. Yes, guys, have you spoken to Johnny? How is he feeling? How's Johnny feeling? Well, Johnny and Amber 
In a statement, Heard said, the disappointment I feel today is beyond words. I'm heartbroken that the mountain of evidence still was not enough to stand up to the disproportionate power, influence, and sway of my ex-husband. Depp lost a libel case less than two years ago against the son, a British tabloid that labeled him a wife beater. A London High Court judge ruled that he had repeatedly assaulted Heard. So there's two findings in this case. In more national news, a Reuters Ipsos opinion poll released today finds President Joe Biden's public approval rating rose six percentage points this week to 42 percent, rebounding from a week earlier when it sank to the lowest level of his presidency. The two-day national poll found that 52 percent of Americans disapprove of Biden's job performance. Biden's approval rating has been below 50 percent since August. Biden has been dogged this year by a surge in inflation, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine helping drive fuel prices higher and global supply chains still hindered by the COVID-19 pandemic. Speaking today, Biden says not to expect gas or food prices to fall anytime soon. Tons of wheat that is not able to get out and get to market, causing everything from a loaf of bread to cost so much money to food shortages all across the world. And so we're trying to work through, you know, a war. We're trying to work through how we can get that harbor opened and uh, get, get uh, the, you know, tens of thousands of tons of grain that are there. The same with gasoline. You have the, 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 the issue that's occurring now is you have Europe deciding that they're going to further curtail the purchase of, of, of Russian oil. And there's a whole lot of consideration going on about what can be done to maybe even purchase the oil, but at a limited price so that it has to be sold. There would be an overwhelming need for the, for the Russians to sell it, and it would be sold at a significantly lower price than the market is generating now. There's a lot going on uh, right now, but the idea we're going to be able to, you know, click a switch, bring down the cost of gasoline is not likely in the near term, nor is it with regard to food. The senior economist for the Center for Economic and Policy Research is Dean Baker. He tells WBAI things are getting better because the oil embargo and sanctions against Russia haven't rebounded to hurt the West as much as expected. The question is, is whether this is a temporary story that it's going to go away or be less of a problem going forward or whether it's actually going to get worse. And to my view, the evidence is overwhelmingly on the temporary side that we have factors, the pandemic, uh, the shutdowns in China, obviously related to the pandemic and the war in Ukraine that have led prices of a lot of items to go much higher. But I'm expecting that most of those will be alleviated. I don't have any clear forecast on the, the course of the war, but at least in the case of the pandemic, um, that it seems to be waning, including in China. For better or worse, they're relaxing their lockdowns, and that should reduce some of the supply chain problems that we're still seeing. Will that be in time for the election in November? I think we will see lower inflation between now and November. A lot of it, obviously, people pay huge attention to the price of gas. I think the direction between now and November is more likely lower than higher. Um, I think prices have been driven up by speculative factors. People are worried about a lot of oil being removed from the world markets because of sanctions against Russia. I don't think that's panning out. The oil that the U.S. and West Europe isn't buying from Russia, for the most part, is being sold to China and India and other countries. Uh, that, that You could think that's a bad thing, but that's the reality. But what that means is not that much oil is actually being withdrawn from world markets. And the implication for the inflation and price of gas story is that I expect prices will come down. 
what caused this inflation? Was it greedy corporations jacking up prices to get back money that was given away during the pandemic, or was it more prosaic than that? I think it was more prosaic. Take it for granted that companies are in business to make money, so they're going to charge what they can. But what allowed them to raise their prices so much is that we really did have a shortage of a lot of goods, oil being the most obvious, oil and gas. There was a wide range of goods that were in short supply. There's been talk of recession is looming. I'm pretty optimistic on that. Recessions usually come about the Fed raises rates, which of course they have been. It's usually a story where the Fed raises rates much more than they have to date or even are talking about. We're definitely going to see slower growth, which is probably a good thing in the sense that the economy had been growing more rapidly than it could sustain in, in 221. So we couldn't keep growing at that rate. We will see slower growth, but I really don't see a recession coming. I just don't see the signs for it. For the most part, we're actually looking at a pretty good economic picture going forward. Dean Baker is Senior Economist, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, including mainstream economist Joseph Steiglitz on its board of directors. On the other hand, economist Jack Rasmus of St. Mary's College in California and author of numerous books says mainstream economists have it wrong. That inflation is here for the long haul and a recession is in the wings. As long as the war goes on in, uh, in the Ukraine, we have a global uh, supply problem with those particular products, including grain, including fertilizer, nickel, and palladium that in cars and so forth. And it's going to continue. The war isn't going to end very soon. It's going to continue. And that pressure is going to continue on prices, particularly energy and food prices. With that pressure, we've seen for at least six, nine months now that certain corporations who don't have a supply problem are using the general awareness, all their shortages in order to hide behind the shortages problem and uh, jack up their prices. You know, the monopolistic corporations, you know, the baking companies, the, the uh, you know, three or four run the industry and the same with the meat cutting, three or four run that industry. Even with this baby food thing is partly a manipulated shortage by Abbott Labs. They could have opened up a long time ago. They're saying, well, we'll start in June and it'll be eight weeks, you know, and so forth. And now you even got popcorn company. It's a monopoly that the company makes popcorn saying, oh, now that you've got uh, opening up people going to films saying, oh, there's going to be a shortage here. Popcorn. This is going on everywhere. A lot of companies are taking advantage of it. Some companies have a real supply problem. It's mostly an energy food problem. You see shortages in housing, driving up housing prices. Of course, rents follow that, rent prices going up. What's your evidence that it's not going to continue? I've just given you some evidence of why it will continue. What are these mainstreamers really saying? Not a hell of a lot except the official line here. Inflation is going to continue throughout the summer, no doubt. Oil prices are going up again. There's a little bit of a slowdown there when the CEOs had to testify before Congress. Now they're going up again. And the same thing is going to happen across the board. So I don't see any abating of inflation to maybe uh, late third, fourth quarter as the economy begins to slow, which it will if the Fed keeps raising rates the way it is. And that will destroy demand to solve a supply problem. And that's what they're betting on. I don't agree at all with that assessment that you just uh, communicated, right. uh, which is the mainstream line here. What's going on with this thing between Biden and the Fed? The Fed is going to raise interest rates. It has begun to raise interest rates. The problem is when you raise interest rates, you're going to slow down the economy. Now, we're just going to destroy demand by causing 
certain industries to slow down and maybe even contract. In other words, you're going to take it out on demand and consumers to slow the inflation. That's really not their fault. Biden's between a rock and a hard place. Biden wants inflation to slow, but Biden knows that that's going to slow down the economy. Now, what they're betting is that the Fed can dampen inflation and not spill the economy over into a recession. I don't think they're going to be able to do that. The mainstream line is not to get people too excited, concerned about it, because if they do, then they will help fulfill what's going to happen anyway. Hmm. Is there a split between uh, Biden and uh, the Fed? No. The Fed is the only game in town as far as the elites are concerned. This is a repeat of 1981-82. They're engineering a recession because they don't want to do it by raising taxes. They don't want to slow down inflation by raising taxes. That's anathema that Congress will never raise taxes. And I believe it won't take too much more in terms of rate increases to precipitate a recession. I see this uh, at the end of this year, fourth quarter. Economist Jack Rasmus of St. Mary's College in California. He's the author of numerous books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Russian forces fought their way into the center of Ukraine's industrial city of Severodonetsk today, edging closer to claiming a big prize in their offensive in the eastern Donbass region. But in a boost for Ukraine, locked in a grinding struggle against Russia's invading army, the United States announced a new $700 million weapons package for Kyiv, which will include advanced rocket systems capable of hitting markets, hitting targets up to 50 miles away. Colin Kahl is Defense Undersecretary for Policy. Today, President Biden directed the drawdown of an additional $700 million in weapons and equipment from the Department of Defense inventories. The capabilities in this package are tailored to meet critical Ukrainian needs for today's fight, including requirements for rocket artillery. This authorization is the 11th drawdown of equipment from DOD inventories for Ukraine since August of 2021. The capabilities in this package include high-mobility artillery rocket systems, or HIMARS, and guided munitions with a range of up to 70 kilometers, five counter-artillery radars, two air surveillance radars, 1,000 additional javelins and 50 command launch units, 6,000 anti-armor weapons, 15,000 155-millimeter artillery rounds, four MI-17 helicopters, 15 tactical vehicles, and spare parts and equipment. That's Defense Undersecretary for Policy, Colin Call today. Moscow accused the United States of adding fuel to the fire. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said the supply of the rocket launchers raised the risk of a third country being dragged into the conflict. Nevertheless, Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Ukraine promised it won't use the systems to hit targets inside Russia. It's Russia that is attacking Ukraine, not the other way around. Uh, and Simply put, uh, the, the best way to avoid escalation is for Russia to stop the aggression and the war that it started. It's fully within its uh, power to do so. Specifically with regard to weapon systems being provided, the Ukrainians have given us assurances that uh, they will not use these systems against targets on Russian territory. Uh, there is a strong trust bond between Ukraine and the United States, as well as with uh, our allies and partners. I'd also uh, say that Throughout this uh, aggression, indeed, even before, President Biden was very clear with President Putin 
about what the United States would do if Russia proceeded with its aggression, uh, including continuing to provide security assistance that Ukraine needs to defend itself against the Russian aggression. Uh, there was no, no hiding the ball. We've been extremely clear about this from day one, with President Biden communicating that directly uh, to President Putin. So we have done exactly what we said we would do. Um, and it is Russia, again, that chose to launch this aggression, despite all of our efforts to prevent that, uh, with intense diplomacy over many months. Uh, again, they started the conflict. Uh, they can end it at any time. Uh, and uh, we will avoid any concerns about miscalculations or escalation. Sounds like spoiled children in a playground. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Meanwhile, after days of heavy fighting around Severodonetsk, Donetsk, much of which has been laid to waste by Russian bombardments, Russian troops were inching forward through the city streets. Ukraine says about 70 percent of the city is under Russian control. If Russia captures the city and its smaller twin, Lyshansk, on the west bank of Seversky Donetsk River, it will hold all of Luhansk, one of two provinces in the Donbass that Moscow claims on behalf of separatists. And in local news here. In New York, Mayor Adams proposed a slate of amendments to local zoning laws today. He says would slash bureaucratic red tape staying in the way of housing development, economic growth, and green infrastructure. The three proposed amendments, which need approval from the city council to take effect, were laid out by Adams during a breakfast meeting held in downtown Manhattan by the Association for a Better New York. Adams dubbed the amendments his City of Yes blueprint. I want to preview some of our plans to supercharge the economy and improve the economic recovery and lay the foundation for a new era in energy, housing, and commerce. Some of these ideas are long-term visions that will play out over the years to come. Others are practical plans that will produce results on a shorter timeline. But all of them are centered around the same idea embracing the creativity and innovation of 8.8 million New Yorkers. Cutting red tape, minimizing bureaucracy, reimagine the way we do business, build housing, and promote economic growth. We're tired of the artificial barriers and unnecessary regulations that have stifled expansion and innovation. Going forward, we're going to turn New York into a city of yes. Yes in my backyard. Yes on my block. Yes in my borough. Mayor Adams, the First Amendment proposed by Adams focuses on removing limitations on where retail, nightlife and life science companies can operate, giving local businesses more flexibility, the mayor says. The Second Amendment aims to expand the city's housing stock by making it easier to convert empty commercial buildings into residences. Scrapping what City Hall has says are unnecessary parking regulations, usually minimum parking space requirements, limiting high-rise developments south of Canal in Manhattan. The final tweak would change zoning to make it easier to install solar panels and electric vehicles charging stations. We want New Yorkers to stay here, put down roots, and raise families. We want to continue welcoming immigrants and young people seeking opportunity. So we must have places for all kinds of New Yorkers at many different price points. We will soon be releasing a detailed housing blueprint. But today, I want to focus on one key component of that plan, updating our zoning to boost the overall housing supply in our city. 
We're looking to change up the rules and allow a wider range of housing types and solid sizes to accommodate all kinds of households across the city. We will look to ease conversions of underutilized buildings, including vacant office space that will allow new housing to be created without building from the ground up. We did it after 9-11. We rebuilt downtown here. We can continue to convert an office space in the process. We're going to make it easier for owners of homes and small buildings to alter and update their property, whether it's adding a family room or an apartment. And that's the mayor. In related news, the mayor is expected to make his long-awaited policy pronouncement on housing, public on um, public housing pretty soon. He's already said he would rely on private public partnerships, long criticized by progressives as giveaways to real estate developers. The partnerships known as Rad Pact would shift control of the city's NYCHA housing to private management companies. The use of private public partnerships, also known as private equity investment from private sources, has been growing in New York and other cities. And economist Jack Rastos, who we heard earlier, says it's all about avoiding raising taxes on corporations and the rich. They don't want to spend city budgets. They just turn it over to private equity, and then they take over, and over time they uh, keep the best rents and uh, dump the rest or don't invest in the rest. It's a way of privatizing government spending so the government doesn't have to spend, and this includes local government. So, But why are they doing that? Why are they privatizing and they don't want to spend locally? Because they won't raise taxes on the wealthy. That's why. Everything comes back to this tax issue, whether it's at the federal level, the state, local level. Business has everybody by the throat in politics and no taxes, no taxes. Well, if you don't raise taxes, you got to cut spending. So you privatize public works and public goods and spending. How do you do that? I turn it over to private equity. Economist Jack Rasness. And finally, lawmakers in Albany struck a deal over the weekend for a two-year extension of mayoral control of city schools. The new bill is expected to pass before the legislative session ends on Thursday. Mayor Adams wasn't happy with the compromise. In a statement, he says it's not the best we can do for New York City students. The bill changes the rules for mayoral control, expanding membership on the panel for education policy to 23 from 15, giving parents more power, although City Hall continues to have the final say. The executive director of Class I Matters, a parent-teacher advocacy group, is also a WBA host, Leanne Hames. She says class size is the ultimate metric for better classroom outcomes. For more than 50 years, have been fighting for smaller classes in the New York City public schools. In fact, it was a political issue as far back as the days of Jimmy Walker and Fiorella LaGuardia. This is not a new issue, but it's an issue that remains central to the question of whether New York City kids are getting their right to a sound basic education under the state constitution. In fact, in the CFE lawsuit, the state's highest court said New York City kids were denied their right to a sound basic education because class sizes were too large. And class sizes actually went up and not down after that decision was made. The legislature finally acted in a responsible way And the mayor should grab hold of this opportunity and run with it instead of resist it. It's easier for him than ever before to lower class sizes to these levels because enrollment has dropped and the citywide averages in class sizes are much lower this year and close to what the caps are in the law, in the bill. 
It will also make all the other initiatives that he's put forward much easier to achieve, including his literacy initiative, in order to screen kids for dyslexia and other reading problems and address them, impossible to do in classes of 25, 30 or more. Every educator knows, every parent knows class size matters. It's time to actually address this problem and solve it. Mayoral control, what is the holy grail there? Why is it something everybody wants? And then what they do with it is uh, not as great as you would expect. They want it so bad. Politicians always want more power. They never want to share power. And in this case, way back when, the, the legislature gave Michael Bloomberg unlimited power over our schools. And we've had 20 years of it. And it doesn't work. And nobody's happy with it. Pretty much, if you look at the parent activists and the advocates, they do not think that mayoral control or one-man rule works. There should be checks and balances on this power. There was a stronger consensus than ever before and a more organized consensus on the part of parent leaders to fight the extension of, of mayoral control. There needs to be some central body that makes decisions because that's where the budgeting happened and that's where a lot of the uh, decisions about where to build schools and, and how to address education as a whole, there needs to be more checks and balances. And the legislature seemed to, to some extent do that this time around. Leany Hames. Mayor Michael Bloomberg grabbed control of the schools in 2002, renewed four times since, rarely to the satisfaction of Bloomberg's successor, Bill de Blasio. In 2017, Mayor de Blasio was forced to authorize new charter schools in exchange for renewal. In 2016, he got just a one-year extension, which was a humiliating defeat. The president of the United Federation of Teachers, Michael Mulgrew, hailed the agreement, saying the legislation would uh, increase parental involvement in the governance of our public schools. The news was produced with Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.